We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. You can turn over there. And um, this is a great, great passage. I mean, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8 talks about finishing well. And that is the title of the study. Paul has given instruction to Timothy about how he should conduct himself as a pastor. He's talked about how to deal with the false teachers and the troublemakers. Um, He's told him to not be afraid, but to walk in the power of the Lord and in the strength of the Lord. Um, He's told him to raise up Bible teachers that can teach the word. But now here in verse 6, Paul is going to speak of his soon coming martyrdom. That he's about to to be taken from this planet. And um, he writes to him. And it's not a woe is me. And it's not one who's seeking sympathy. Um, He is content and okay with the sovereign hand of God. But he is speaking triumphantly of how he's lived his life and how he's walked. He speaks in such a way that all of us should desire to be able to say these same things at the end of our life for how we have lived them. And this is the Lord's heart, and this is the Lord's desire. So in verses 6 through 8, we're going to answer the question of how do we finish well. And so there are eight points that we're going to make. Uh, Some of them we're going to move quite quickly through. But uh, eight points, and the first one found in verse 6. Let me read to you the whole passage first, because it's so short. It says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So the first point is that he offered sacrificial service. This is how he finished well. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul was aware of the wisdom that Jesus gave when he said in Luke 17, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. The more you try to protect your life and not give it away for the kingdom of God, the less you're going to have that is meaningful in this life. The more you give yourself away, the more you pour yourself out, that's how you're going to really find out what living is really all about. So far from being uh, conservative and cautious and uh, being afraid of overstepping the line, the Lord says, just lay it all out on the line. Go for it. Lose your life. And then you're going to preserve it. That's where you're going to find what living is really all about. And so Paul was not afraid to forego the temporal, this temporal life and its benefits and its comforts and its in, enjoyments because he knew what he was living for was something that was going to be greater than what he gave up. So he lived a life of sacrificial service. Now he says, poured out as a drink offering. You might want to just write this down as a cross-reference there. You can read Numbers 28, verses 4 through 7 on your own. But in that, you'll find this is where uh, Israel was instructed in their worship at the temple that they were to take uh, wine and they were to pour it out. So you can imagine red wine being poured out. The imagery you get, as Paul talks about his martyrdom, is of somebody um, being poured out 
and he's, of course, speaking spiritually, but um, this is also used enigmatically of a, of a martyrdom of somebody losing their head. Paul was not a, going to be crucified like Peter was or like Jesus was because Paul was a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were not crucified. Often what would happen to them is they would have um, their, you know, they would have their head removed, and that's exactly what's going to take place with him. But Paul often uses this phrase, even when he wasn't about to die, uh, to to some extent, he goes, I, "If I'm being poured out as a drink offering, I'm very glad and will rejoice in that. I'm glad to be to empty my last bit of strength and and vigor." In the service of the Lord, and if that is serving you, then I'm glad. I'll, I'll rejoice over that. I'm not going to uh, complain against this at all. How many of you have ever read or heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? Anybody? All right. All right. Quite a few of you have. This is a book you can get. I think you probably can even find it free out there uh, in a PDF format. But it's a book that compiles... Um, Christian historical records of people who were put to death for their faith. And I want to read to you um, what is written down historically, not scripturally. So you got to put your own kind of weight on this, all right? It's, it's not scripture. It's history. I think it's reliable. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be sharing it with you. But this is what we know of Paul's end of life. And I'm just going to read to you the quote from uh, Fox's Book of Martyr. Martyrs. It says, Paul, the apostle, who before was called Saul, after his great travail and unspeakable labors in promoting the gospel of Christ, suffered also in his first persecution under Nero. Abdias declares that under his execution, Nero sent two of his esquires, Ferega and Parthemius, to bring him word of his death. They, coming to Paul, instructing the people, desired him to pray for them that they might believe. Who told them shortly after they believed and, uh, after they believed and be baptized at his sepulcher. This done, the soldiers came and led him out of the city to the place of execution where he, after his prayers made, gave his neck to the sword." These two guys come to tell him, you're going to be beheaded and we want to get saved. Will you pray for us? Well, that depends. Are you going to take me to the place of execution or are you going to let me go? Because if you let me go, I'll pray. No, he doesn't do that. He is so okay with the Lord's will happening in his life. He doesn't want death, but he senses that this is the time that he's going to go. And so he offers up sacrificial service. These two guys get saved while taking him to the place where he's going to be put to death. And indeed, he was poured out as a drink offering. Paul lived his entire life this way. This wasn't just a newfound uh, discovery of living a, uh, a, a, a life of abandonment for the Lord. In Acts 20, verse 24, he says, none of these things move me. And the things that's talked about in this verse and the next is that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested. And he says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Okay, so I may be arrested, but that doesn't 
that doesn't change me. That doesn't give me a different conclusion about what I'm supposed to do. I'm, I need to go to Jerusalem. I need to testify of the Lord Jesus Christ there. And I'm going to do that. And if I end up getting arrested, I end up getting arrested. But that does not cause me to alter the plans that God has for my life. Or in Acts 21.13, Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I, am all, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So one of the prophets, Agabus, bound himself in Paul's um, sash and says, this is what's going to happen to you. And they were weeping and they were crying because of they so believed that that word of, of prophecy was going to come to pass. And he's like, listen, you guys, you're, man, you're breaking my heart watching you cry over this. But just so you know... I'm not only willing to be bound, I'm also willing to go far beyond that. I'm willing to die. And this is how he lived his life. He finished well because he lived a life that was full of sacrificial service. You know, when we begin to guard our life rather than pour it out for the kingdom of God, when we begin to say no to the voice of the Lord and to the instruction of Scripture, that tells us to walk like this or do this. Now listen, you're not the Apostle Paul. You don't have to go do exactly what he did. And you're not Troy. You don't have to do what Troy did. But you're you, and the Spirit of God has a plan for your life, and you must walk in that. And nothing should move you off course. Even if it be the threat of harm and difficulty, we don't run from difficulty as followers of Jesus Christ because he said there would be difficulty. What did Jesus say? If you want to follow me, prepare to die. That's what he said. This was his announcement. If you follow me, they hate me. They're not going to like you more than they like me. And so he prepared us for this very experience. But this, this temptation to be careful and cautious and not walk out the will of God for our life is not how we've been instructed to do it. You know, there are many people... Apart from Christ and apart from the kingdom of God and the words of Jesus, that would look at a life that's lived cautiously and carefully, unwilling to take risks, as an unfortunate way to live life. No theologian, no example really here of the Christian life, but listen to what Theodore Roosevelt had to say Far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checked by failure than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in a gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. That's not for the kingdom. That's not for the purposes of Jesus. And he's like, listen, I, don't, I, I wouldn't want to live like that. I want to be some of this taking chances. How much more for us who have the kingdom goals and principles set before us that we would live to fully follow Jesus. Don't seek to guard your life and protect your life because Jesus said if you do that, you're going to lose it. Just live for me and live for my name's sake and then you're going to really know what it's all about. The next thing we read there in verse 6 on how to finish well, second point is, is that Paul was aware of his mortality and the time of my departure is at hand. So he realized that what I'm going through, this imprisonment, and what is soon to come is going to result in my death. 
It's not going to result in my freedom. Now, when he wrote Philippians, he was also in jail. And he says, now, whether to stay or to depart, I cannot decide. I don't know which one's going to, which is better. For you, if I stay behind and I continue to pastor and look over you, that's going to be good for you. But for me, it's better if I would go and be with the Lord. But he believed that he actually was going to remain, and he did remain. But now here, same circumstances, he says, this is the end. This is the the end of my time. The psalmist says in Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The fool does not pay attention to how many days he or she has to live for the Lord. The wise man or woman is numbering those days and is looking and saying, I only have so much time to live for the purposes. And the, the challenge is we can get so caught up in living for this life and the cares of this world and other things, as Jesus says, that we lose sight of the limited amount of time we have to live for Jesus Christ. Amen. I was 27 when I got here. I'm 54. 27 years have elapsed. And as I think about the next 27, if the Lord should tarry, I realize that at 81, if I'm still around, my strength will not be what it is when I was 27 or when I was 54. And I've got, a, I've got a, a, a number in my mind, not being spiritual, it's just a number, of I think, well, you know, I, I think I can run hard and I can have a lot of strength and I could go full strength probably up until about this age. And as I think about that, and I am, we make decisions as a ministry, as a church, and me following the Lord, I'm, I'm thinking about those things. How much time do I have? It's no time for me to be cautious. It's no time for me to kind of protect or just kind of, no, it's time to lay it all out on the line. And it's the same is true for you, but we must teach uh, ourselves to number our days. When you're young, you think you have an endless amount of them. That is not wise. When you're in the middle of your life, you're like, I have so many responsibilities. I don't know how I could possibly do anything else. And we don't realize we only have a limited number of days. When you make it to retirement, you're like, now it's time for me. And so it's like all through life we have these different uh, worldly philosophies that can come in that would keep us from properly numbering our days and just living for Jesus. And so he was aware of his mortality and that one day he would stand before him. Now... Um, here, here's some bonus information, okay? I didn't give this to the other two services, but here's, here's something just to note. As we looked at this passage, um, there are three, no, there is five words that are found in verses 6 through 8. In verse 6, we have the word hand. And then in verse 7, we have the word fought. And then we have the word finished. And we have the word kept. And we have the word loved. I'll give them to you again in just a moment in verse 8. Hand in verse 6, thought in verse 7, finished in verse 7, kept in verse 7, and loved in verse 8. All of these are verbs. And they're all the same exact type of verb in the Greek language. It is a, what's called a perfect. And the perfect is a, uh, a verb that speaks of a completed past action that is resulted in a present reality. So what has happened in the, the focus of a perfect is not what happened in the past. The focus of a perfect verb is there was a past action that has resulted in this. It's the this that really is the emphasis 
of the perfect. Let me give you an example. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. The word Tetelestai, finished, is a perfect verb. So what he did in the past is having a present reality today. That death on the cross is finished, has made a payment in full, that's what the word means, for us in our debt to the Lord. So what he did in the past is still having a present reality. You never know how long context alone will determine how long that ongoing impact will take place. If you want a word picture, think of throwing a rock into a still pond. When it hits, that's the past action. And what happens, those ringlets that go out, if you will, that's the the present reality. And so Paul says, my departure is at hand. I have fought, I have finished, I have kept, I have loved. All of these things are in the past, and now here I am in this present reality. So contextually, what is the present reality is is he talking about? And it's not immediately obvious, and maybe there's some layers, maybe there's some ringlets of uh, present reality from the way in which he lived. Of course, one thing is because he had fought, finished, kept, and loved, he's in jail. Doing what he had done in the past for the Lord had resulted in the present circumstances that he's about to be put to death. Um, Another one could be looking forward into the future that how he had lived his life was going to give him a present reality of a good standing before Jesus in heaven. I think that's true as well. Maybe even this. Maybe even what he has done in the past, and this is kind of how the whole sermon's actually being crafted here, is that it still is having a powerful impact today because we're looking at how he lived his life. How he lived his life back then is still speaking to me and to you today that I need to be following the Lord. Boy, I tell you, that is knowing how to number your days, isn't it? That you would do and make decisions for the Lord that would continue to reverberate throughout your lifetime, and throughout the lifetime of people that hear of your story. Into the day in which I stand before the Lord and I hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Those past actions resulted in any, um, I would say, for an eternal benefit for Paul as it is for every believer. But boy, he is aware of, of um, you know, these things. He knew that he only had a limited amount of time But the way he used that time continued to pay dividends for the glory of the Lord. In verse 7, we come to our next point, and that he says, I have fought. And he's going to say, I have fought the good fight, but the good fight will make a second, another point. But I have fought. He understood the conflict that he was in. It is good for soldiers to know when the battle is on. Because you conduct yourself you walk differently knowing that you're in a fight you could do training you could be you know on your way to the battlefield you could be waiting for the the battle to begin but once it's begun it's different well here's the news flash we all are in a current battle we are all fighting right now and Paul understood that it was a fight he understood that there was a struggle 
And, and, and we can look to many other verses, and I'm only going to give you two, but Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 speaks of this fight, speaks of this battle that we are in with spiritual forces. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So this is Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And none of us know when that day is going to come. We never know when the enemy is going to just let it loose on us. We don't know if it's going to be tomorrow or next week or next year. It's not every day. He has limited resources. So he can only attack at certain times. But you can be certain that there's an evil day and that the forces of darkness will come. And we are told to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to, to stand having done all to stand. And that is a goal. We put all effort into standing faithfully and righteously against the onslaught of the enemy. In 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, we read, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Everybody, all believers, the brotherhood, they all experience the attacks of the enemy. Now the world scoffs at that idea. They laugh at this kind of idea. Maybe even some believers kind of, in, you know, quietly inside, roll their eyes at the idea that there's a, there's a, a spiritual battle that's going on. I heard an illustration one time. So, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, the comparison between a cloud or a tree. If you were to speak to the tree about the wind, it could tell you about the force and the storms that come and how it seeks to uproot and pull it out of the ground. If you were to speak to a cloud, the cloud would say, what are you talking about? I just go wherever I want to. I, a whole sky is mine. I just, I'm, I, I, wherever I want to go, I go, not realizing that is being pushed about by the wind because it doesn't have a foundation. When you have a foundation in Christ and you're going to stand fast in him, you're going to find out about spiritual warfare. You're going to realize it. And listen, Jesus talked about spiritual warfare because we read in the Gospels of how he was tempted by the enemy. Now, he, we don't read his words there except for what um, how he responded to the enemy. So it's not him writing it down. But how did anybody know if it was just him and the enemy out there? Because he relayed it to his disciples. He told them about the spiritual warfare. He told Peter that Satan desires to sift you like wheat, Peter, but I have prayed for you. He believes in spiritual warfare. He experienced spiritual warfare. And he has called us all to be ready for it. So we need to understand that we're in a conflict, that Satan is wanting to undo what Christ has begun in you. He's wanting to limit the impact that you would have for the glory of the Lord. Don't let him do that. Walk with that sense of sobriety, vigilance, that he could come at, in, at any time and in many different ways. Now listen, I am not making a political statement right now, and I'm not making a health statement right now. 
But I want you just to think about this season of the pandemic and how it has had an impact upon people spiritually. Who would have ever guessed that a virus situation would have such an impact upon the church of Jesus Christ and people's faith? You know, there are those, and I'm not just talking about people who didn't attend church for a while because they were fearful. I'm not talking about that. We, that's another discussion. I'm talking about people who just said, I'm done with Jesus. And this season, this became the moment. This became, I think, I, I will just say this. Unlike any time in my lifetime, these last couple of years has been the evil day for the church. Amen. There are churches that are closing down all over the place. I was speaking with our, your brother, um, Jamie, over in Costa Rica and how the churches have been imp- impacted in Costa Rica. And really, this is throughout the world. And how many churches, they're still not allowed to gather. They're still, you know, have the, you know, the government saying, if you meet, we're going to take you to jail. We're going to shoot you. These are some of the things that have taken place. And that's not the case in Costa Rica, but many of them just saying, we're not going to come back. But that's true here, too. A lot of people decided that they're done with the church. They're done with Jesus. And we didn't understand the conflict that we are in. But the enemy utilized this moment. And here we are fighting about the politics of it and the health of it. That is not our business. Our business is look at how it has affected people spiritually. And we have answers for that. So we need to be ready. We need to be ready. And he understood there was a conflict. Verse 7, he says, it was a good fight. I have fought the good fight. There was a value system, there is a value system in heaven, and he understood heaven's priorities, and the priorities are good. These things that Paul lived his life for, preaching and proclaiming the gospel, he understood that's what heaven valued. This is not what do I value, this is what does the king value. What does our master and Lord and Savior, what does he value? What does he call good? It's not what I call good. It's not what you call good. It's not what we call good. The question is, what in Scripture does God say, this is good? These are my priorities. This is what you are to esteem and to value. Jesus put it this way. Those things which are highly esteemed among men are an abomination in the sight of God. There is a night and day difference between the values of the kingdom and King Jesus and this present world system. And so we need to make certain that we are valuing heaven's priorities. Still in verse 7, we get our next point that allowed Paul to finish well. He was committed to the cause. He says, I have finished the race. I have finished it. I didn't just start it and walk away from it. I didn't just put forth a lot of effort and then now I'm going to just try and coast in. He says, I have finished the race. So, I mean, you can just hear in Paul these, again, another perfect verb right there, finished, it's done. He realizes his life has come to an end, and it's just the process of, you know, having his head removed from him. But he's like, okay, I'm finished. But it's going to have an impact. And um, when we think about how we live our lives, we must have the same commitment to faithfully following the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, Paul says, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I'm not shadow boxing, 
but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. This caused him to, to conduct himself in a particular way because he did not want to be disqualified. He wanted to finish the race that was set before him. Or Hebrews 12.1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are to run. And we are to, to, to do it with a full-on commitment, which means there are sins which should never be in my life. And there's even weights, there's snares, that things that can just slow me down. It's Albert Barnes who I remember reading many, many years ago. He says, many Christians burden themselves and weigh themselves down with so many worldly goods that they can never make swift progress. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but quick progress in their journey to heaven. Just, we just get loaded down with the cares of this life. And, and that's not where we should be. We should be committed to the race. And then we should be committed to finishing well what has been set before us. Historically, um, there is a, well, the marathon is based, uh, we, we run marathons, I say we, not me, you run marathons. And, um, but a marathon is, that even the name is something from history. In 490 BC, the Athenians were in a battle in the coastal village of Marathon. Darius I, the Persian king, um, and his armies had met there in this battlefield. And the Greeks had this amazing victory. And so they wanted to get word back to the king, and one soldier decided that he would run. It was 26.2 miles away where he had to go. And as he ran, he ran with such unreserved commitment that when he got there, he delivered the message and died. That's why I don't run marathons. <laughs> I don't want to die. I've got biblical reasons, you know. So if he was willing to do that for a good report and for a, a, a national cause, how much more ought we be willing to do this and be committed to the cause that the king has placed upon us. You're not called. I mean, listen, you, 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 it's not like you applied for this job or you're trying out for a team. The king has called you by name to his side and said, I have things for you to do on my behalf. While I'm gone, I entrust them to you. You can't find a, a higher, more noble, more meaningful, more purposeful thing to do with your life than to be committed to the cause that the Lord has given. And one day we will be before him, and we want to make certain that we have ran that race well. But if you're encumbered by many things, they're not sinful things, but you know it's slowing you down. The Spirit of the Lord right now is speaking to you about the, this thing or those things or this venture or, or whatever it is, this idea that you have, and yet it is keeping you from being committed to the cause of the king, well, then let the king's words change your heart and your life. 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. May we hear the voice. The the Lord wants himself and his purposes to be first in our life. May we be committed to that. May we let nothing move us off of that mark. There at the end of verse 7, he says, I have kept the faith. Paul remains steadfast in his belief that Jesus was the Christ and the Savior. He remained steadfast in his belief that he was Lord and Master and that he had every right to tell him how to live and how to conduct himself. He wasn't going to be moved away by the stoning he got at Lystra or by the snake bites that he got on the island of Malta or by the betrayal of his countrymen um, you know, in, throughout many different towns or being you know, falsely accused of, of breaking Jewish law and being thrown in jail. None of these things caused him to move away from his belief that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, understand that when you say, oh, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore, I'm not going to walk with the Lord anymore, you're saying, Jesus, I don't want you anymore. You're not just saying no to a philosophy. You're saying no to a king. You're saying no to a redeemer and to a savior. It's like, well, you know, but I've been hurt so bad, or these people did this. Well, since when should Jesus be responsible for what others have done? Do you want to be responsible for what your neighbor did down the road? I don't think you do. If you were held responsible, well, everybody in this neighborhood is terrible. Oh, time out a minute. That's not fair to say that. We're not like that. That was this person. Oh, you don't like being accused falsely and being lumped together? Then why would you blame Jesus and quit Jesus simply because your feelings have been hurt by a sinning brother or sister? That makes no sense at all. What has he done to you? That would cause you to say, I'm just not going to be as serious about it anymore. I'm going to back away. I'm going to pull back. I'm not going to be as committed. Why? What did he do? Did he insult you? Did he call you a name? Did he, you know, rip you off? Did he lie to you? He's done none of those things. He's come to this earth and died on the cross and paid for your sins to redeem you. Why would we be even tempted to move away from our belief in Jesus Christ. Stand fast. In verse 8, two more points here to make. In verse 8, it says, Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Now, I've alluded to this as we've gone through, but Paul anticipates accountability here, doesn't he? He knows there's a righteous judge. He knows that he's going to stand before him. And he knows there's going to be a reward that's handed out. And it's that crown of righteousness. And he wants to be, he wants to be crowned by the righteous judge. He wants to receive that, that wonderful heavenly bestowment upon, uh, bestowal on his life for the way in which he lived. It's like, listen, I want to go get that. And so I'm ready to go. I'm done, and I am looking forward to it. You know, all of us are going to stand eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, if you will, with Jesus for how we've lived this life. Not for whether or not you're saved or not. That's a different line. If you're in the great white throne judgment line, you are in serious problems. If you're in the line to stand before the righteous judge as a believer and give an account for the way you lived your life, well, that's the right line. Because every believer is going to be in that line. We're all going to have to give an account for how we have lived this life. And for Paul, as he anticipated that accountability, 
he lived his life appropriately. You know, it is something that I think we try to quiet, we try to push to the side, we don't want to contemplate it maybe, but I want you to think about the day you are before the righteous judge. Excuses will not fly, they won't even enter your mouth, they won't even be in your mind or your heart, because you're going to be looking upon the one who was pierced, who was wounded for your transgressions and mine. We're not going to make up excuses then. We're just going to see him in his glory, in his beauty, in his kindness, in his love, in his generosity. And what we are going to be concerned with at that moment is, have I lived for him? I'm accountable to him. Not just to believe in him, but to also, not just to believe in him as a savior, but also to follow him as a Lord, as a master. If he's master, if he's Lord, then that would make me what? Slave Troy. And I signed up for it as you signed up for it. And I will give an account for what I have done with my life. Lastly, in verse 8, he says, And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So this crown is not just for him, but it's for all believers. But the emphasis I want to take from this this last phrase of verse 8 is that he lived with the heavenly hope. He loved the appearing. So here we are at the holidays. Many of you have uh, had people come in to visit you. Hopefully, I know all of you have loved their appearing. And if it's not that, don't raise your hand. Just keep looking straight ahead and smiling. You know, but maybe some of you didn't love that appearing. But with, the, with Jesus, all of us should love that appearing. We all should be excited. You know, when, now, I mean, this, this Christmas has been interesting for Rebecca and myself um, with all the traveling we did um, for weddings and for funerals and for sickness in the family. Um, all the family just was kind of like, we're all going to just stay in our, our hometown. So a little, very different, actually. Um, but when family comes rolling into town, um, Rebecca is always running out the door to greet them before the car is even stopped. And she's trying to get to the grandkids and pick them up and kiss them all before I can get there. That's the truth. Watch out for her. You know? So this is, this is what she has such a love for family when they appear. But this is what we are to have for Jesus. To love his appearing. Oh, yeah, Troy, but you're pre-trib and I'm post-trib. That doesn't make any difference. Besides, you'll figure it out on the way up that you were wrong. And you'll be so glad that you were wrong. You're going to be so glad to be pre-trib, I promise you. But really, no matter what, pre, mid, post, when are we going to be raptured? Before the tribulation, the middle of the rapture, or the tribulation, or after? We all, despite what our eschatology is, we all should what? Love his appearing. Well, I used to love his appearing, and this guy said, and this book said, and it didn't come to pass. Well, shame on them and shame on you for believing in a date. Amen. We're told not to. Okay, you had, you had forewarning not to. So we shouldn't, but we should always live with that love, that passion for the return of Christ. Well, what if? What if he, I love his appearing my entire life, and then I come to the end of my life, and he hasn't returned? Well, I guess you're going to be in the same shoes as the Apostle Paul and every other Christian that has lived in the generations that have gone before us. 
The Lord expects that we would live with the love that he's coming back. That's what he expects, is that there would be an anticipation. There would be a hope. I promise you that if, you know, my kids had traveled in from New Mexico, Florida, or Alabama, and they had come to the house, and we weren't there, and they're like, hey, where are you? Like, oh, we, we're just out. We'll, we'll be home in a few hours, I guarantee you. There'll be an offense there, don't you think? What do you mean? What? Well, we just, you know, we just wanted to get out. We're going to catch a movie. Really? We just drove all the way in. I think Jesus is going to be saying, really? I've come all the way from, from heaven for you, and you're not even looking up? So listen, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. How long have you been a Christian? Well, the return of Jesus and your meeting with Jesus is closer than it's ever been. It's never been closer to the return of Jesus Christ than it is at this minute right now. And that's going to continue to be the case with every passing day. Live with the heavenly hope of meeting Jesus and seeing him return. As Paul's, as John said in his first epistle, that those who are looking for his coming will not be ashamed at his appearing because we purify ourselves knowing that he's about to come. Kind of like every teenager who cleans the house before the appearing of mom and dad come back, all right? You're going to purify that house. You're going to get it clean because mom and dad said, make sure the house is clean when we come back. It'd be dirty the whole time, but now you know when they're coming back. Well, you don't know when Jesus is coming back, and I don't know. So we constantly live in this state of purifying ourselves so that when he breaks through those clouds for us, we are not ashamed at his appearing. I pray you're ready. You know, when I was a little boy, and, and I'll end right here, I had, um, I had this... It was an amazing dream of the return of the Lord. Um, and in this dream, um, I was watching the heavens open up, and I was, it was like in slow motion, though, not like everybody's moving slow, but the events were slowly unfolding. And I knew the Lord was coming back, and um, I knew he was coming to take us. And, um, you, you know, in that dream, um, I began to, you know, I'm a middle school boy, so um, I'm running out into, in my dream, I'm, I'm going out into the baseball field, and I'm telling everybody, I spent a lot of time on the baseball field, I'm telling everybody that Jesus is coming back, and I'm urging people to get right. I remember just this powerful sense and this excitement that I had at the, at the return of the Lord. I don't know if anybody else has ever had a dream like that, but they, they're, it's something that will motivate you. But even if you haven't, you have the more sure word of prophecy of Scripture that says he's coming back, and you need to be ready. Rebecca and myself have a friend in Australia. He was strung out on some drug, was nowhere near being a believer, was an atheist, but somebody had been witnessing to him. And um, he had a trip on drugs, and it was the second coming of Christ. And he thought it was real. And he wasn't just in a dream state. It's like he was having this experience. And he, he, taught, he would tell the story of how he ended up over at his friend's house like 2 or 3 in the morning, banging on the door. And he was just seeing bodies just being lifted up. And it was all this, this chaos was going. And he's banging on the door and he just speaks to his friend. He goes, is it too late? Is it too late? 
He goes, too late for what? It's 2 in the morning. He goes, is it too late to give my life to the Lord? He got saved that day, and he's still in ministry. He's pastoring a church. So it should have a, an, an incredible impact upon our life. And, and again, the word of God should have a greater impact upon my dream or some drug addict's trip that actually had truth in it. Jesus is coming back. And we should be living and loving his appearing. Father, thank you that you have loved us enough to send your son and that you're going to send him again. And now one day we will be with you. And Lord, we say... Um, even so, Lord, come quickly, Maranatha, we want to see your appearing. And Lord, if there is a coldness in our heart, if there's a scoffing maybe even in our heart of your return, Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts. We pray that you would, you would get us thinking clearly and, and straightly about this matter that our dear King Jesus is coming back for us. And that we would love that appearing. We would long for that moment to see you burst through the clouds and to call us up into your presence. I want to give you a moment just to respond to the word of the Lord this morning. Very challenging, very convicting, but boy, what a great way for us to calibrate our hearts moving into this new year. It's okay to be crazy for Jesus. It's all right to live with reckless abandon for him. Maybe you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've never asked him to forgive you of your sins. You've never admitted that he is the Lord of your life. But you know you need to do that. Then right where you sit, you can pray. Say, Lord, I do believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. I believe you're coming back. And Lord, I want to follow you. The Lord will hear you and he will immediately answer that prayer and he will forgive you of all of your trespasses, of all of your sin, of all of your iniquity and he will give you life and you can begin to live for the hope of his appearing.